I want him dead. I want his family dead. I want his house burnt to the ground. I want to go to the middle of the night. I want to piss on his ass. Hello, and welcome to Mobcast, the only podcast approved by the Temperance League of America. Today, we'll be discussing part two of Arnold Rothstein's life after the World Series fix that he is so well known for. And the fact that Arnold Rothstein is mostly remembered for the 1919 World Series scandal, also known as the Black Sox scandal, is surprising, since in the actual year 1919, Arnold hardly gave it a second thought. No one charged him with any crimes, despite it being pretty well known that he was the one who was behind the whole fic. After all, who else could afford it aside from the big bankroll? Rothstein had officially become a millionaire by the age of 30, but that was back in 1912. This amount adjusted for inflation would be around $25 million today. And for the remainder of the podcast, I'll factor in inflation. But it was after the hit on Beansy Rosenthal and that there were no more gambling houses to be found in Manhattan or anywhere on the east side. To try and fill this gap in the market, floating games started popping up. These floating games were temporary craps tables and card games set up in hotel rooms, the back storage rooms of restaurants and stores, and would usually only operate for a night or two, sometimes on a regular basis. To gain access to these sort of rooms, either an invitation or information would be necessary. Arnold Rothstein had both of these in spades. Everyone wanted Arnold at their games. His appearance would make these exclusive congregations even more high profile. Well, okay, not everyone wanted AR in their rooms, simply because some could not afford to pay out Rothstein if he won, which he frequently did, since he had a mind for numbers, and he would usually bet pretty heavy. There was one massive flaw with how these games were run. Specifically, they were prone to being knocked over, seeing as there wasn't much that could be done for security. Arnold learned this firsthand when he was held up and robbed of $270,000 at a floating craps game, followed by another game getting raided by the police, who were cracking down pretty hard on gambling in 1919, perhaps overcompensating for their previous reputation for corruption now that the reformist groups were gaining traction. It was during this raid that Arnold got charged with assault which was not exactly something that a man of sophistication or a man masquerading as sophisticated should be known for. The big bankroll loved to gamble and could have made a small fortune on the nights where he was on a roll. However, the poker games would soon have to take a back seat to a different type of gamble, investing in liquor. You see, the 18th Amendment to the Constitution went into effect at the dawn of 1920. Also known as the Volstead Act, it made the importation, manufacturing, or distribution of alcohol illegal in every state. 
the prohibition of liquor would inevitably lead to an underground market for it. Regardless of Arnold Rothstein's presence or not, people just really liked to get hammered. But it just so happened that Arnold Rothstein was there. He had seen the demise of the gambling houses, whose patrons had migrated to the saloons to socialize, and now even those saloons were either shutting down or getting squeezed dry. Arnold could have financed a few speakeasies or distilleries and gotten a good return on them, since their products were so popular. However, something that Arnold had learned in his years of financing, gambling houses, brothels, racetracks, and that one time he fixed the World Series, was that the front man held the most liability. Instead, he reasoned he could mitigate the risk and maximize the payout of getting involved in rum running by barely being involved. These sort of operations had a lot of overhead costs that few men other than Arnold would bother investing in for obvious reasons, but Arnold definitely had the money, and he was still a little unsure as to whether the liquor trade was right for him. Despite his habit for loan sharking and his fondness of fencing stolen jewelry, furs, and especially war bonds, which were the liberty bonds that were being sold to help the United States fight in World War One, he for some reason had his scruples about the alcohol trade. As he had never particularly enjoyed the stuff, he felt it made him sloppy, and and he preferred to be composed, at least when in specific company. But let me remind you that this sophistication was always a front. He may have been sensitive about his public perception, but the real way he measured his worth was straight cash. Those same wartime liberty bonds that I just mentioned were known as bearer bonds, meaning that they were redeemable by whoever got their hands on them. And in 1916, Arnold and a partner had managed to steal $60 million worth of them. So, of course, Arnold would eventually decide to get in on the liquor business. After all, there was a high demand for alcohol. The only supplier of it was Joe Masseria in New York, and he was selling rock-gut whiskey to speakeasies. Rock-gut whiskey was whiskey that had been illegally imported, usually from Canada, and then watered down and cut with things such as formaldehyde to increase the profit margins for the bootleggers. Arnold saw this and decided to work in a different segment of the market, one that would thrive through his peers in high society since they'd be his customers. Rotgut, again, had gotten its name because it tasted awful, but it was seemingly the only thing the only thing that was available to the common layperson. Arnold figured that it would be a symbol of status for people to have the real thing. Authentic scotch and Irish whiskey from Europe would fetch an alarmingly high price per bottle since those who wanted it would always have deep enough pockets if there was a person to get it from. This plan was actually derived from a proposition brought to Arnold by Waxy Gordon and Waxy's friend from St. Louis, Big Maxi Greenberg. Big Maxi had proposed that he wanted to import Canadian liquor into Detroit and then distribute it from there, a standard rot gut procedure. All he needed was $2 million to start up the operation. Now, Maxie was friendly with Waxy, and so Waxy introduced him to Arnold Rothstein. Arnold said he'd 
sleep on it, and came back to Maxi the next day with a few conditions, which were more of demands. Specifically, Arnold would be the boss of the operation and make the important decisions and strategy. He also wanted it to be run from New York rather than Detroit. And lastly, he wanted Big Maxi Greenberg to sign an expensive life insurance policy with Rothstein's own insurance company. These terms were begrudgingly agreed to, as it was better to bow to the big bankroll than to leave empty-handed, since Rothstein would go forward with the plan regardless. Greenberg knew his best option would be to step down to distribution. All it took was a bit of correspondence with Arnold's connections in Europe, and within a month, thousands of cases of liquor were sailing into New York and being sold to nightclubs, hotels, speakeasies, and even to other gangsters. Each case, if packed right, could hold 12 bottles of booze. Depending on who was buying the booze, a bottle could go for anywhere from $80 to $120 per bottle, which means that a case was worth about $1,300 to $1,400, which means that these boats were more liquor than boat. But with only the occasional loss of a shipment or a whole ship, Here's where things got a little bit trickier. These larger boats would anchor down four miles off of the coast, and then a swarm of three or four speedboats would make trips back and forth from the shore to the ship. As the cases were being unloaded off of the speedboats onto the shore, they were immediately loaded into trucks that would transport them off the coast and into the country. Rothstein had to do none of these things, and he was still making well over $250,000 in profit per boatload. And aside from the occasional negotiations over territory that he had to attend, and occasionally act as a mediator for two other gangs arguing over a disagreement. After all, he was a fixer, a go-between. Not merely between the lawbreakers and the politicians, but even between two different groups of lawbreakers. And of course he would charge a fee for his time. This money further financed his passion for high-stakes gambling. Even after a close call in 1922, when the Coast Guard detained one of Arnold's ships, Arnold was a silent partner, and it would be nearly impossible to make a case that he was the one acting as the CEO of an illegal booze empire. But that run-in that one of his boats had with the Coast Guard made him decide to step back even farther, and he decided to give the decision-making power to Waxy Gordon and Big Maxi Greenberg for strategizing. But Big Maxi didn't stay in the picture for long and eventually moved back to St. Louis. But Arnold still maintained 60% of the take since, after all, he had put up the money to get the whole operation started and he was taking the biggest risk, financially, that is. AR knew that having his name tied to that sort of business was risky when it came to the feds that were just now beginning to really bear down on AR. And he started having trouble four years after the 1919 World Series was fixed and had to give depositions in which he acted as if he was a regular businessman getting falsely accused, which totally worked. However, the feds were now looking 
more closely at AR's activities. Arnold was smart though. For all illegal money earned through prohibition, he would just claim it as gambling winnings and pay the taxes on it. However, there was also a darker side to AR. He had started out in gambling halls, a bright young man with a knack for billiards. This was a respectable, and at the time, gentlemanly pastime that only those of the upper class could afford. Rum running was less vogue, but still viewed as respectable since the demand was so high. However, what Rothstein never wanted anyone to know was his dealings in the heroin trade, something much more lucrative than being a rum runner, but severely looked down upon by almost everyone in society, aside from those already addicted to the drug. Arnold could justify a bet that was skewed in his favor as him simply being smarter than the other person, which others ad admired him for. The booze could be justified by the social climate at the time and people demanding their hooch. Heroin, however, was a product that was not socially acceptable or morally justifiable. It was taking advantage of a customer base that had gotten in too deep with their usage of the drug, which was previously legal, and they were now desperate to get their hands on it. A boat with the same amount of heroin as it could fit crates of booze would be worth tens of millions of dollars a much more lucrative margin than the simple rum-running operation. It was this money, which had always been the yardstick by which AR measured his success, that tantalized Arnold into entering the business of importing heroin. Arnold Rothstein is responsible for mentoring some of the largest organized crime figures in history, and he mentored them mainly by using them as lackeys. This includes Charlie Lucky Luciano, who was 26 when he met A.R., Meyer Lansky, who was 21, Frank Costello, who was 32, and a very young Benny Bugsy Siegel, who was only 17 when he first worked for A.R. Each of these individuals would later go on to build their own empires, but it was Arnold Rothstein who coached these low-level crooks into the kingpins that they would eventually become. For years, everything that Arnold had touched, gambling, booze, dope, real estate, loan sharking, fencing stolen goods, all yielded immense profits. But for some reason now, the gods of chance had turned against him. He started losing money left and right on bad real estate investments, as well as a scandal throughout his gambling houses, which were getting busted for using rigged roulette wheels as well as just plain old gambling. Arnold had hit a cold streak and only dug himself in deeper. He was also paying out around $200,000 a year to a pair of bodyguards, the Diamond Brothers, Legs and Eddie. Now, whereas AR had once traveled in wealthy and respectable circles with stockbrokers, politicians, and steel barons, he now surrounded himself with crude gunmen and narcotics peddlers, the Diamond Brothers, Lucky Luciano, and Meyer Lansky. This was the new kind of Arnold Rothstein, the one that founded the American drug trade. Initially, AR was repulsed by people's narcotic drug habits. Story goes that he once caught one of the men he had, he had hired to transport booze for him smoking opium and got really pissed and told the man to 
leave or I'll have you smoking a heater. Which is old timey talk for you'll get shot in the face if you do not quit. However, Arnold's whole life was rife with drug users. Many of his associates had drug problems. Waxy and Luciano had even dabbled in selling drugs before they were on AR's payroll and just started to sell booze solely. But because of this experience, Luciano became AR's head of narcotics distribution once it crossed the border. The, the alcohol trade just had too many variables for Arnold. It wasn't about the money invested, but bootlegging required warehouses, tankers, speedboats, and convoys of trucks, as well as bribes, not just to the cops, but also to the custom agents, the coast guardsmen, and the state police. And that doesn't even factor in the competition found in selling booze. Groups fighting over territory, killing each other, he found it much easier to just pass the legwork of this rum-running operation onto Meyer Lansky and Dutch Schultz. Meanwhile, Arnold shifted his focus to the largely unguarded drug market. He sent his man Legs Diamond to Europe in search of narcotic, which he finally found for him in China. This Chinese supplier had massive quantities of opium, and so it was very cheap to buy. All of the opium AR's operation would ever need, be it to make morphine or heroin, it was available. And so Rothstein took advantage of it. But by 1927, AR's drug transactions were just too big for the feds to ignore. At one point, police seized $14 million worth, which is actually a street value of $100 million worth of heroin, morphine, and cocaine. 1,200 pounds of the stuff in crates on a ship labeled bowling balls and pins. AR was becoming more and more paranoid with the feds breathing down his neck and he was even willing to throw others under the bus to try and save himself. Even going so far as to set up Legs Diamond in a sting operation where Legs was caught with 100 pounds of opium in one of the transport trucks that AR commonly used for his operation. You see, the Harrison Narcotic Act of 1914 was what really made opium illegal and even preceded prohibition by six years. However, there was hardly anyone enforcing this law since it was passed more as a consequence of international trade and tariff laws rather than it actually being a harmful substance. So Arnold had found the perfect niche, but again, due to the high quantities and the massive influx of supply, the federal government started to take notice and they started looking squarely at AR, the only man who could finance this. Arnold was not exactly a man that ever lived by the gangster's code of silence, so to speak. And he would definitely not die by it. It was November of 1928 when Arnold Rothstein got a 38 caliber slug in his gut in room 334 of the Park Central Hotel on 7th Avenue. He managed to stay alive for two whole days, but refused to name the shooter. 
no matter how many times he was asked. Or at least that is the way the story goes. In reality, Arnold was not someone who would abide by the code of silence, and he had proven it before. AR was more than willing to go to the police if necessary, like when he had gotten robbed by Killer Johnson, or when he set up Legs Diamond. So why would he refuse to disclose the shooter? It leaves a lot of unanswered questions, mysteries. Why would the killer lure AR all the way up to the hotel room and pay for the night, rather than leave him dead in the street, like Beansy Rosenthal? Why did AR only get shot once, in a non-fatal area? Wouldn't a hired killer have shot multiple times to a fatal spot? And why would a hired killer, or anyone for that matter, toss the weapon on the pavement at the very scene of the crime? And remember, this was long before fingerprints or forensic evidence was even conceivable. And maybe it was a gambler that Arnold owed money to, but alas, at the age of 46, the brain, Mr. Big, the big bankroll, Arnold Rothstein, was dead. For more information on who is believed to have killed Arnold Rothstein, check out my interview with David Petruja, author of Rothstein, The Life, Times, and Murder of the Criminal Genius Who Fixed the 1919 World Series. This has been The Mobcast.